1: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that
2: shape our world.
1: Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world.
2: Through the eyes of the most influential voices.
1: Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton.
2: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Will they or... won't they? Stocks fluctuate with the chances of more stimulus, while the virus continues its relentless comeback. Welcome to Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The Justice Department this week did what everyone expected. It brought a massive antitrust suit against Google, claiming it has monopolized the market for Internet search, in part by getting Apple and others to make it the default search engine on smartphones. Well, if that sounds vaguely familiar, it should. Over 20 years ago, Justice brought a similar action against Microsoft for requiring computer makers to set its web browser as the default on their machines. Microsoft lost its case at the trial level, but it appealed and eventually settled, agreeing to change some of its behavior, but not coming close to breaking up the company. Sam Palmisano, former CEO of IBM, knows firsthand what an antitrust case can do to a tech company. I asked him whether this
3: case could change the face of tech. I don't think it will. What changes the landscape is the technologies itself, the evolution of the technologies. And go back to IBM, which was many computers and client servers. Let's go back to Microsoft, which was the OS and the PC versus the internet and the phone. That would, that's what drives the technology cycles. Now, it doesn't mean it won't impact a company specifically. I mean, certainly IBM was impacted for a period of time. Microsoft was impacted for a period of time. They've all recovered. But So it's not a a company specific is different than an industry. There are so many smart kids out there today inventing so much technology every day across the United States and across the world. I hardly think that'll be the driver in this particular case. At the same time, Google has
1: a very, very strong position in search, internet search. It seems almost undeniable that they have a monopoly power in the area. Uh, do they need to maintain that monopoly power by paying people like Apple $8 billion, we're told, a year to be the default search engine on
3: their iPhones? Well, that's a fascinating question. I've thought a lot about it, quite honestly. And I guess the way to think about it, if you think of the phone as landscape, or say a media, and you're an advertiser. I mean, Google is an advertiser, right? They need to be on the Super Bowl. Why? Because 110 million people around the world view the Super Bowl, and they're going to pay whatever 15 seconds cost. So you have the phones. There's the Android phones. There's the iOS or the Apple phone. That's basically the market of the smartphones, right? And so, therefore, they need to be on that landscape. Now, there there are lots of alternatives, as I read the press, so that Microsoft and Bing are vying for it. But my view is that from a competitive perspective, you had Google, you have Apple, and you have Microsoft. Certainly very, th- very few small businesses could be impacted by this. And one of those parties decided to write a bigger check than the other. That's called you know, a deal. It's economics uh, for whatever sets of reasons. Now, the fact that Google got it and maybe not Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft is a trillion-dollar market cap company. It certainly hasn't hurt them because Google got the real estate of the phone. Now, real estate of the phone is important, but mostly from the view of an advertiser. Also from the view of the data, which is a different subject, but but both the advertiser and the data, it's very, very important.
1: So as you say, Sam, Sam, paying to have an exclusive deal with someone is not unheard of in business. It happens all the time. At the same time, if you have a really dominant position or monopoly position, it gets a little trickier. And one of the things that I wonder about is that we now have uh, Google saying, The reason people use our search engine so much is because it's better than anybody else's. If it really is better, why did they need to pay that money? That was sort of money wasted—eight billion dollars a year—unless it was to get a leg up on the competition.
3: Well, I think fundamentally they wanted to be—they—they wanted distribution. They wanted to be the eyeballs, right? So I think they're thinking about it as they have good technology, but they also need to get it out there, and the phone is a way to get that technology out there. Now, to your point, though, the issue around that is really what I would call the tie-in sale. Tie-in sale has been an issue for IBM, in our case, and Microsoft embedding stuff in the operating system, also attaching stuff to the mainframe. Uh, So when you look at this as a tie-in sale, if that search algorithm is biasing the result to their offerings or their products or Apple's offerings and their products, that is an issue, right? And then you've seen this happen in financial services. You've seen it happen elsewhere where tie-in sales, are a problem, but it doesn't seem to be the highlight of the case, at least at this point in time.
1: It also raises the question of remedy. Even if that were found to be illegal, don't you just stop the tie-in sale rather than breaking up the company? I mean, that's also been going on over in European Commission, actually, with their competition proceedings against Google.
3: You're absolutely right. I mean, basically, what happened to IBM? We had to open up the interfaces to the mainframe and give them to the competition the same day we announced. What happened to Microsoft? They had to open up the iOS, iOS. The, i mean, sorry, the operating system. iOS is Apple. Windows. They had to open it up and let other people embed functionality into that operating system. So, that's been the, that's been how it's been settled in the past. Uh, in all those cases, this fact of a structural uh, a remedy and such. Uh, breaking the company up uh, has been really, has not happened historically. The only time it did happen is AT&T, or the telecommunications industry, where they did break up AT&T and formed all the baby bells. But if you look at history again, they've reconsolidated down to two or three players.
1: Uh, Sam, you mentioned the data, uh, the importance of the data. I wonder if we're overlooking that a little bit here, because besides their dominant position in search, through that search, Google is having access to an enormous amount of data. That builds a big moat around their business, doesn't it?
3: Yes, it does. I mean, this is really the issue to me. Long term, the issue is the amassing of the data and the uses of the data. Uh, And there are two elements to that. These massive data sets give them an advantage as far as applying intelligence to the data. I would call that artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. So it knows when you're talking to Siri or you're browsing where you want to have dinner or where you want to plan for an event. And it'll, it'll ping you with ads, as you know. That's a simple Layman's example of that. And there's much more sophisticated things that can be done. That was Sam Palmisano, former
1: chairman and CEO of IBM. Coming up, former Attorney General Eric Holder tells us why the stakes are even higher for this year's election than we thought. That's next on
0: Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out Public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Under our Constitution, the United States takes a census every 10 years, and that is used to allocate seats in the Congress among the states, which makes not only who's elected president and senator, but who's elected to state houses really critical this year, as they will do the redistricting based on the 2020 census. Former Attorney General Eric Holder, who is now the head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, says there's a lot on the line when people head to the polls this year.
4: Yeah, I mean, I understand. I get it. You know, this is an existential election. However you decide that, you know, you want to vote. This is obviously a very president, very important presidential election. But we really have to focus on these down-ballot races. We're going to go through a redistricting process in in 2021, and the people elected this year will be the ones who will help draw those lines. Uh, I'm the head of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and we're trying to make sure that the process in 2021 um, is is a fair one, and that the lines are drawn not to protect uh, incumbents, but to make sure that elections are competitive and that we end up with representatives at the at the state level um, who will represent the interests of the people and not the special interests. And people need to understand that on, on a day-to-day basis, you're probably more impacted by who serves in your state legislature than you are by the president of the United States when you're concerned about... criminal justice reform, uh, protecting a a woman's uh, reproductive rights, um, protecting the right to vote, um, a lot of health care decisions. These are decided, uh, as I said, more in the state legislature than they are um, in Washington, D.C.
1: So this comes up because the census, according to the Constitution, has to happen every 10 years. And this is one of the 10 years. And ironically, this time it's with the presidential, which doesn't happen that often. I guess every 20 years that happens more or less. Uh, What happened 10 years ago?
4: Uh, Well, 10 years ago, we ended up with a a process that Princeton University um, said was the most gerrymandered um, redistricting effort of the last half century. Uh, Republicans used the power that they got in the 2010 uh, midterms to really draw the lines in a way that favored them, and we had to deal with that over the course of the last um, 10 years. What my organization is trying to do is to make sure that we just have a fair process, one that doesn't favor Democrats, one that doesn't favor um, Republicans, one that doesn't gerrymander for either party, but just draws the lines in in a fair way. I worked with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger on on this effort. Uh, He and I have a piece that's out in uh, in, in Missouri uh, trying to protect something that we helped put in place there, which was a a nonpartisan redistricting commission that will draw the lines, take the power away from self-interested politicians and put it in the hands of of a neutral body passed by the, um, the citizens of Missouri. Politicians there are now trying to weaken it. He did an op-ed They said, don't do that. Uh, push back against these politicians and preserve that, uh, that neutral body.
1: So, Eric, you took us just where I wanted to go, which was to say, now you're representing the Democrats on this. Would you be willing to take it out of the political sphere and give it to a bipartisan commission? Or is it more a matter of we want to make sure our Democrats control the state houses so that we get to gerrymander?
4: No, I actually think that the best way, the gold standard is to create these um, nonpartisan commissions. They already exist. Uh, for, have existed for some time in Arizona and in California. Uh, we were uh, instrumental in getting them put into Michigan, Missouri, uh, Colorado, and Utah, and they will be doing the redistricting um, next year. I think that's the gold standard. That is the best way to do it. Uh, politicians, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, are, are going to try to you know protect their districts, protect their party, uh, put it in the hands of these non-partisan, um, these nonpartisan bodies. That way you will end up with, um, I think, the fairest line drawing, and you will end up with legislatures that are more um, beholden to the people as opposed to the special interests. And I think if we have a fair process, let me be very clear. I think Democrats um, and progressives will do will do just fine. But I don't. I, I don't want a gerrymander for uh, for Democrats. Let's let's let independent commissions
1: draw the lines. Eric, the Supreme Court is very much on all of our minds right now. Uh, we, we have Judge Amy Coney Barrett being referred to the full Senate for what looks like it will be a confirmation next week. To what extent does the, does the Constitution limit or the Supreme Court limit the degree of gerrymandering? I know that for some reasons you cannot gerrymander, for example, for race. But what about when it comes to politics? Could that be a limiting factor or could it be actually the reverse of that if we have a 6-3 conservative majority, which is what some people call it?
4: Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court in a decision uh, just this past year, which I think was wrongly decided, said that the federal courts cannot hear partisan uh, gerrymandering cases. The court is still, federal courts are still open to hear racial um, gerrymandering cases. And so as a result, we've had to bring lawsuits in in the state courts using the state constitutions when we wanted to attack um, partisan gerrymandering schemes. Uh, I think that decision was wrong. Uh, I think federal courts are uniquely situated to deal with uh, questions of of gerrymandering, whether they be partisan or or racial in in nature. So the courts clearly have an important role to play here. My hope would be that the courts will will stay open to um, hearing racial gerrymandering cases, Uh, My hope also will be that ultimately the court would reverse itself and and recognize that the decision that they made in the Ruchko case was a a wrong one uh, and open the courts, the federal courts up um, to uh, partisan gerrymandering cases as well.
1: Eric, more generally, how concerned are you as uh, formerly our foremost lawyer in the country about legal challenges and disputes coming out of this election? Are we going to have a clean election?
4: Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think we got to be prepared um, You know, for cases being the election, parts of the election being decided um, in the courts. And I think you might see a lot of litigation leading up to um, the election when decisions are being made about you know, signature matches on, um, on, 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 on votes by mail, uh, how long polling places should stay open, all, all those kinds of things. Um, but I actually think that the turnout is gonna be sufficiently large, and I suspect the decision of the American people is gonna be pretty decisive. So I don't really anticipate that the courts will play a significant role Post election, but uh, it's clear that both campaigns are getting ready, uh, have lawyers all around the country, and, and prepared to, to litigate whatever might, uh, might might surface.
1: Yeah, it would be awfully nice to let the voters decide rather than the courts. I think we both I mean, can that, agree on that. Good, that'd be a good thing. Does it surprise you that Iran and perhaps Russia would be trying to send disinformation to really tamper with our elections?
4: No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and I think that, you know, we had we need to be prepared for uh, the, these kinds of intrusions, these kinds of attempts to, uh, you know, interfere with our electoral system. Uh, what struck me as a little strange was just the, the, the press conference that was held. Um, with the information that was shared was not particularly um, something that was unanticipated, but, but to try to spin it as a way, as an attack on the, of the Trump administration uh, and the Trump campaign, as opposed to an attack on the American electoral system, I thought was just a little um, a little, a little different and unexpected.
1: That was former Attorney General Eric Holder. Coming up, going beyond the damage to the economy from COVID-19. Former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan says we have even bigger problems coming from the lack of investment. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. When we begin to look at the world of the 1990s, uh, I think the United States comes down a notch or two. Will we live worse or just live not as relatively better? I think not as relatively better. Look, you know, there's a lot of talk about the United States losing its sort of per capita income uh, leadership in the world. But the real issue is that the average American household has got the best homes in the world, it's got the best sets of appliance, the best telecommunications. The average American still lives far better than the average anything else. The trouble is, is that the gap, which used to be huge, is now beginning to narrow. It's going to narrow further.
1: That was Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan appearing on Wall Street Week 33 years ago. A lot has happened in the three decades since, and Chairman Greenspan thinks he's seen the US advantage over the rest of the world grow even smaller. But even worse, he believes our failure to save and invest has meant that much of the developed world is putting at risk future GDP growth.
2: The virus is creating a major element of uncertainty. And so we have to deal with it. Forecasting it is very precarious all we can forecast is that it ultimately will disappear. It has over the generations, and I say generations, because this type of problem, one way or another of the virus, has confronted us periodically, and they're always a little bit different. But I think we're at the later edges of it. Behind that is a more fundamental issue, which is likely to really take hold over the period ahead, and that is the aging of the population.
1: Put some numbers around that if you can. What are you looking at that's telling you about that aging of population?
2: Well, first of all, I have a, a whole series of data, but uh, the fact that the population is aging, is, is, uh, aging is very obvious from all of the data that are really available, both for the United States and for the rest of the world, because uh, it has a fantastically important impact on economic behavior. And the reason essentially is that when the aging, when the population is aging, Something fundamental happens, and the major issue is that people start to retire. People don't retire until they basically can no longer function. If you go back historically, uh, people would work until they would, till they died. The issue of pensions, the issue of various different social security benefits didn't exist in those days. And what we're finding now is that there's been a very significant expansion, specifically in, uh, in uh, social security benefits. That in turn is creating a major decline or slowing in the rate of growth gross domestic savings.
1: Alan, explain how that works exactly, because spending more money on old people in itself doesn't sound evil. They spend that money. It can help the economy. But the money has to come from somewhere. Where is it coming from?
2: Well, it's basically the issue of uh, uh, when when we're dealing with gross domestic savings, which is fundamentally what's coming out of the private sector, Uh, we're finding that uh, what the data show, actually, is that when you get a very significant increase in social benefits, they crowd out the current demand, the current supply, I should say, of gross domestic savings. If you curtail gross domestic savings, you will also curtail gross domestic investment, mm. which is the key to, to economic growth because fundamentally it generates uh, uh, all of the economic activity that we get in the capital goods markets.
1: And when we talk about investment, capital investment, uh, normally the thing we think about is productivity and growth and productivity. Are we seeing productivity flatten out in the United States because of the phenomenon you describe?
2: What it is, is it's a pattern of productivity growth which is going up and then flattening out. And the basic reasons for it flattening out is that we're getting a significant increase in entitlements crowding out gross domestic savings, which is the core of gross business business investment, I should say. And that's where, where, where economic growth is coming from.
1: That was Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve. Coming up, we wrap things up as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard.
0: That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out Public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: To pull together a rather diffuse week. We welcome now the one person who could do it. He's our special contributor. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, we always look at the week, and there's ups and downs, choppy equity markets. But we also look at the longer-term trends. We just heard from Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, someone you know well, saying the problem we have actually is too little investment. Now, you've talked about secular stagnation. We had Janet Yellen on earlier this week saying there's secular stagnation. There's too much savings. Is there a conflict here?
5: Well, I think Alan would agree and I would agree and Janet would agree that we've got too little capital investment and that if we want to grow faster, we're going to need to find ways uh, to promote uh, investment. I think where there'd be some disagreement uh, is that Janet, uh, from what I understand, has really endorsed the doctrine of secular stagnation that I've been arguing for a number of years. She's expressed a concern about an excessive level of uh, savings, and I think that is a very serious uh, concern. Alan's concern, which also has uh, merit, is with the excessive growth of uh, entitlements. But I think right now our priority has to be to support adequate uh, spending. And so I would not support cutbacks in entitlement programs. If anything, it seems to me what COVID points up is the importance of expanding uh, social insurance so that people uh, feel uh, safer. Alan always had his finger on the pulse of the economy when he was chairman and detected new trends very quickly. And I think if he was there now, he'd be recognizing that there was a sluggishness with respect to uh, inflation that pointed to a need to do things to propel uh, the right kinds of uh, spending. And he would be cautioning us, as he always does, that it's not just a matter of more spending, but it's having the right kinds of spending. And I certainly think that's got to be a preoccupation as well. Uh, for the new administration, Larry, let's talk about one specific form of investment. That's investment
1: in corporations. We had Tesla earnings out this week, and Tesla beat all the expectations. Fifth straight quarter of profitability. But one thing that really jumps out at you is the market cap of this company. I actually looked up the price earnings ratio, comparing it to General Motors, for example. Their forward price earnings ratio is 114 compared to seven for General Motors. There's been a lot of concern about short termism in terms of investment, but I guess when it comes to a Tesla, it's a long term investment. People are being very
5: patient. Look, I think there's a nonsense idea out there that somehow our stock market is driving all kinds of short-termism. I see just uh, the opposite. I see what Tesla is worth and what the rest of the automobile industry is worth. I see what PayPal is worth, and I see what many of the major banks are, are worth. I see what uh, Palantir is worth, and I see what various consulting firms are Worth. I see what biotech companies are worth and then what standard uh, pharmaceutical uh, companies are worth. I think it's really very, very clear that for companies that have real, credible, visionary growth strategies, the market swoons and puts an enormous multiple on their earnings. And so there is an incredibly strong incentive for anybody who can point to a credible growth strategy uh, to do just uh, that. Some people can't. That's why General Motors has a price earnings ratio of uh, seven. General Motors had a price earnings ratio that was low for the whole decade of uh the noughts at the beginning of this century and they were always yabbering about how the market didn't give them space for the long run but in fact they had to be saved uh from bankruptcy because they'd invested uh too much not uh too little and they'd invested too much too uh wastefully so i think the great one of the great strengths of the american uh system is our venture capital industry, where people can raise uh, half a billion dollars before they buy their first suit or even their first uh, tie. I think one of the great strengths of our system is that we've got a market that is willing to go heavily with people who have the chance to create the really, really big thing. And I think it would be a terrible mistake, whether, frankly, it was... uh, larry Fink, or it was political leaders or it was the business round table if we were to push our system to be one where anyone who said the word long term was able to invest a lot without being subject to uh discipline uh from the market yes there can be uh pressures for the short term but some of that is just pressures for accountability and i have to say when i hear somebody complain about pressure for short-termism. I hear somebody who's not passing tests of accountability and is facing pressures from uh, the market. And those pressures are often valid pressures to take the capital out of the company and let it go somewhere where somebody can put much, much better uh, use to it. Not always. We certainly have excesses coming from activists, corporate uh Raiders, But I think we need to recognize and the Tesla story that you tell is a great example that a big strength of our country is that we've got capital markets that can really bet big on uh, growth prospects, which means betting big on the long term. We always end our week with, as Summers says, rapid fire
1: around here. So let's go through a few because we heard this debate this week between the two candidates for president. A lot of talk about COVID-19. One of the things we heard was President Trump saying that we are about to turn the corner on COVID, even as during this week we set a new record of 80,000 new cases in the United States. When do you think we're going to turn that corner on COVID?
5: From here, this speedway has got a long straightaway. My guess is when winter ends in March, will be about when the, tor- when the corner comes. We'll likely have a new, more competent administration. By then, a vaccine might be starting to come on stream. By then, we might start having more appropriate um, uh, face-, face masking and more appropriate and large-scale uh, testing. So my guess is we, turn- we make a real decisive turn of the corner in about March.
1: So still on the subject of COVID, more or less, one of the other things we've heard a lot about in the debate is reopening the economy, how we do that safely. We've got a big jobs problem. We still have 11 million, more or less, people unemployed that were employed before the pandemic. What is the best way to get those people back employed? Is it to open up the economy now?
5: Wrong question. We need to test. We need to mask. We need to disseminate um, the cures as uh, best we can. We need to be ready to get the vaccine out there as fast as possible. If we can test, mask, and trace, we can let the kids come back to school, we can let the students come back to the campus, we can let the people go back uh, to work, and we can have COVID in decline. As long as we frame it as a choice between having an economy and having our health, we're losers. That's what we need to do.
1: And the last one, Larry, I'm not sure you can grade in a curve when it comes to a global pandemic, but if you were grading, what grade would you give the United States versus the rest of the world and how we're handling
5: COVID-19 right now? Here's all you need to know. The mortality rate per million people in the United States is about 20 times as high as it is in Pakistan. If we can't respond to a problem better than... uh, Pakistan uh, can better than most of the countries in uh, the developing uh, world, that's got to give us some real pause about our government and, frankly, also some pause about uh, our institutions. Mm -hmm. I think this is the biggest failure of American uh, government, quite possibly uh... in my lifetime and that's
1: going to be the last word thank you so very much to our very special contributor on wall street week he is larry summers of harvard of course finally one more thought you get what you pay for or do you this week we've watched a different sort of world series it took us only sixty games to get here instead of the usual one hundred sixty two we've had none of the traveling back and forth between the two teams home fields All the games have been played at the Texas Rangers Stadium in Arlington, nowhere near either Los Angeles or Tampa Bay. And beyond the drama on the diamond, we got to see another sort of contest, a contest of business models between a consortium led by some Guggenheim financial wizards and a former managing director of Goldman Sachs, between a club, the L.A. Dodgers, with the second-highest payroll in Major League Baseball and the Tampa Bay Rays with one of the lowest payrolls. In a normal season, L.A. will pay its top three players, Clayton Kershaw, Mookie Betts, and Kenley Jensen, $75 million, as much or more than Tampa Bay pays all of its team. So at a time when so many businesses, so many households are looking at where they can cut back in the time of the coronavirus, maybe baseball can help us all focus once again on what we truly need instead of simply what would be nice to have. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q